This is the Gould Standard, episode 49, Cecile McLaurin Salvant, Jamming Beyond Jazz, part 2. for you to give you dirty looks I have words that do not come from children's books There's a trick with a knife I'm learning to do And everything I've got belongs to you I'm also really struck by, and we've already touched on this, in your your interest in very old foundational jazz like Bessie Smith or Bert Williams, Imagine Singing Nobody on, on Woman Child, um, Shelton Brooks, Turner Layton, um, and all, as well as, as the songbook. Um, the, it must feel like, like a journey into a distant past that somehow is like at the root of, of the form that you're, you're in. I, I really find your way of approaching that material, particularly stuff from the early years of the 20th century. And in the case of nobody, I think it was written in the 1890s. Um, what is it that you get from going back that far? I go further back. So to me, that's relatively recent. Like I've, I've sung stuff from the 14th century, 13th century. So the, that's not that far back <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to me. Right. But, um, but in terms of the jazz world, it is. Sure. But, but I don't necessarily see that as, I, I don't think in terms of genre when I'm looking at repertoire. Um, and certainly when I'm looking at American repertoire, I mean, if, if I'm singing a Burt Williams song, that's, you know, some people might argue that that's proto-jazz or that's just vaudeville or it's like something totally different, right? So, um, so I don't know. I, do, I am interested in what is the earliest song I can find uh, in a given country um, that I like and how does, it, how does it still, how can it still work today? Um, and, you know, I guess the U.S. is a relatively new country, so we're dealing with late 1800s. I, I've sung stuff from earlier, right, folk songs and such. Um, but it's never, uh, it, it, it would be disingenuous for me to say that it's about an era or about looking for songs based on an era. It's, it's, uh, Sometimes it's pure coincidence. Uh, Burt Williams, I only discovered Burt Williams because I was reading a book by Gary Giddens called Visions of Jazz. And it's a book where he uh, does these little mini portraits of jazz icons that are no longer considered icons. Um, and people that are sort of not part of the Mount Rushmore of jazz. So he had Ethel Waters in there, who I discovered thanks to him, really discovered. And Burt Williams, and I found out through this book that Black people in the U.S. were doing blackface. First of all, I don't even know if I was very familiar with the concept of blackface at all before reading that. Let alone Black people doing blackface. But the thought of that alone got me so... I, I hate to say excited, but it did get me so excited because it was such a moment of just realization of like how absurd and how cruel, but also how completely absurd the world is that we live in. 
that a black person would then add a layer of blackface to perform a stereotyped version of what an audience might think blackness is. Um, it just was, it just blew my mind and I had to know more. I had to find out about it. I had to understand. I had to like do my research. And he mentions the, the song Nobody in his book. And I listened to that song and I thought, oh, this is a great song. I love this song. Um, so it wasn't about me. Like I didn't set out to say, I want to study the earliest music that I can find in jazz. It was more oh, I'm reading this book. Oh, he's mentioning this person. Right. Who is this right. person? But, but in terms you know, of the and, jazz and world, I, I do have a tendency to do that. Like if someone mentions something, I'm going to look it up and I'm going to go listen. If I'm reading a book, sometimes it takes so long to be reading these um, nonfiction books about music because if any time there is any mention of any music, <laughs> I put the book down and I listen to it. Yep. Um, and I've discovered, I found some, so many great songs and so many great musicians through just that that's fantastic um, uh, fantastic and I, I don't want to get too sidetracked on Burt Williams but I became a bit of a fan of his you know someone who you know dealing with all of those you know those generations of bigotry and restriction went on to become a colossal I mean a colossal star on Broadway star of the Ziegfeld Follies um, you know W.C. Field said he was the funniest man and at the same time, the saddest man I ever met. So clearly someone who felt that injustice and died very young. I think he was, what, in his late 40s, maybe? Um, so, you know, anyway, I, I, it's a bit of a, of a, of a sidetrack. But, um, but it does take me to, um, to two aspects of your music making. One is your interest in musical theater. And you already talked a little bit about singing music, um, music from musicals. And also storytelling. And I really find that your way with text is very distinctive. I've, I've noticed how you find at times a particularly strong dramatic moment that you bring out with just a little bit of extra emphasis and precision on a single consonant, um, some you know, bit of accenting here and there. Is the storyline, the plot important for you um, in the way you approach a song? And you try to imagine a character and try to inhabit her and adjust vocally to that personality when you when you bring it to life. Yeah, it's it's extremely important to me. Um, I love a good story. I love language and how it works. I love how how a word can change the course of a story. One word, one one comma. Like I love that kind of stuff. Uh, I also think it's sort of the privilege of the singer as a, you know, compared to any other instrument. We get to say these words. We get to pair music with words in a way that no one else can, right? Um, and I, yeah, I've I've always liked to act, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, my song choices at the dinner table. You know, I want to... I, I, <laughs> want a nice dramatic moment I want to act and um and you know musical theater is such a huge part of the history of American music as a whole and of this genre we call jazz you know it's 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 interesting because I feel like as as per some people before and they told me oh it's it's you know you're you're 
choosing repertoire from from musicals or choosing a lot of there's a lot of music from songs for musicals and i go yeah but that's the songbook i mean i'm just choosing different songs from the same musicals that maybe we've heard less of but honestly i mean coltrane did favorite things that's one of that's you know one of the classic songbook songs um so i'm just continuing in that and i i think I think where maybe I veer into like a sort of cabaret territory is that I really do get into the the characters. I love to get into the characters. Um, so it's, it's, and that's also like me come, that's my baggage from studying classical music and from studying Baroque music, which was, you know, it was so encouraged to get into the characters, get into the context, you know, express the setting through the song, express where you are and when you are and what's going on through your singing, uh, take us there. Um, and so I think that's one of the ways that, you know, all of these, all of these things come together for me. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot to me. It's fun. It's just a lot of fun. Right. Well, I've, I've always been, fascinated by the the sort of magical way that a singer or a particular song can create a completely separate character through a change in vocal color inflection dynamic i guess maybe the classic case is schubert's earl Koenig, where he, basically yes. in four minutes you have to be four completely different characters um and since it's not opera you're just standing at a piano you can't really do a lot physically to bring out that it's all done with the voice and you're switching back and forth it's not just one character then the next to the next you're going back and forth continuously for those four minutes and you know i mean uh i hear a lot of that kind of approach in your singing um is that something that you know again there's a kind of a feedback loop from your classical performance experience that that informs that I think so. I think there is, but I think also ultimately the reason why I was so attracted to classical singing and particularly opera singing is because there was that, um, is because I could have, you know, been in, it, you know, gives me a wig, give me a costume, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm dying on stage. I'm jumping off a, off the top of a building on stage as my final dramatic moment, you know? So <laughs> so I think that's, it's like, yes, but it's also part of the reason why I loved opera so much in the first place. Um, and it's part of the reason why there's certain jazz singers that were so, so important to me when I discovered them, you know, even somebody like Fats Waller who had this really theatrical, funny, sort of dramatic way of, of speaking his songs, of, 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 of bringing you, of taking you there. Um, that I kept with me for sure. But it's, I think it's always been a little bit of a, of a proclivity. I've always loved to be in the imaginary world and to be in character and to make up a storyline for a character and, and, and so That's great. Well, you've had this enormous success. You, you won three Grammys in three consecutive years, and you've been nominated, I think, twice more. You received uh, or became a MacArthur Fellow, the so-called Genius Grant. Um, so you have all this stuff, which presumably now has made you this supremely self-confident 
Wonder Woman that you are today. Um, but then you you made the switch to the Nunsuch label. And I, I think that's really interesting because I think of Nunsuch as one of the most consistently innovative labels in recorded music history. That was in 2021. And that kind of move in a more innovative direction, I feel, was reflected in your first two albums for the label. Um, was that part of a decision on your part that you wanted to start exploring in some new directions? It wasn't. Um, I don't. Um, I don't feel that I was exploring in new directions more so than I ever had before. I feel like it's more of the same. It just maybe from outside looks looks like that. But I think about the recordings I did before. I mean, the window, which was a duo recording with Sullivan Fortner. Um, on that, I have these chansons, I have a chanson réaliste, like a French chanson réaliste. We overdubbed organ on top of the piano. We have an Aretha Franklin song. On the album before, it was sort of like a concept album between live and studio with a string quartet. And I wrote original material that was sort of in response to the standards that we were playing. So it was like half live, half studio. So I feel honestly that it's just always been, I've always been looking for, I don't know. Um, I, I've just always been following my creative instinct and I, I don't see myself as being more exploratory. It, it's, but maybe I am. I just am not, I'm not noticing it. Well, well, um, you know, far be it from me to, t to tell you your own business because you know you know it the best but uh, you know at least as an outside observer i sense well starting with ghost song the the thing that about ghost song and melusina that um strike me are the kind of unifying concept and framing of the albums you know a move back into you know in this world of you know streaming which has sort of atomized the musical experience where people listen to tracks rather than experiencing a kind of a, the you know, so-called the gazamt of, of a full album that you have kind of taken a step back in the direction where there is, you know, this kind of, you know, cross fertilization between the different numbers, you know, for example, in, in ghost song, which, you know, to, at least again, again, to me as a listener is, is about, you know, the comparison of lost love to a kind of a death, uh, kind of a, an end of life. And, you know, the songs all in one way or another kind of comment on that, um, on that um, uh, overall overarching theme. Anyway, uh, let, me, let me go on and wax poetic about how much I love the album uh, a little bit and, and say that the recording is bookended by some really breathtaking a cappella singing, including, I think, probably the thing that, that drew the most comment from critics was your own take on Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights. Um, where did you get the idea of, of, of drawing upon that song? I mean, it was a brilliant choice. It's brilliantly performed. But, you know, you. but not so obvious. I was reading the book. I was reading the book during the pandemic. Um, why I started to read the book, I don't remember. But I had the book. I've, I've had it for years and I never really read it. And I thought, oh, let me read it. 
And I completely fell in love with it. I loved it so much. I thought it was so brilliant. And then I started looking for versions of the book. And, uh, you know, adaptations. TV adaptations, movie adaptations. Because I wanted to stay in it. And I wanted to see how other people interpreted it. And how other people, like, you know. So I started watching different versions and then I remembered the Kate Bush version. I said, this, this to me is the best adaptation of this book. There's no better adaptation. Um, and I was listening to it and I thought, maybe I could record this. Why not? And uh, I was also listening to a lot of Irish music and I was listening to Sean Nose. And um, I don't know how I got to Sean Nose singing. I don't know how I found it, but I found it. And I thought I was completely astounded by this, this type of singing, um, which sounded otherworldly to me. And so little by little, it just kind of came together slowly, slowly. Um, and I think part of it was also, I wasn't singing in front of an audience. So I was a little bit in my own bubble and it just kind of allowed me to Try things that I might not have because I do feel like oftentimes I'm concerned with, you know, the audience's well-being. Right, 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 right. I wasn't even, I, there was no audience. Yep. I was alone, you know, so I could really do whatever I wanted. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, have you heard from Kate Bush? Uh, no, never. Well, never. Oh, she should she should feel very flattered because it is a beautiful rendition. The the last song on the album is one of the child ballads, The Unquiet Grave, a traditional um well, uh, depending on whether you you think of it as Anglo-Irish or Appalachian folk ballad. Um and that is it takes you into that that folk tradition of really telling a story. I mean, there is a, a beginning, a middle and an end. There is a whole narrative through line um and i find it really magical what you did with that thank you so much i love that song i think it's it's so so beautiful and it's so hopeful too you know it's it's telling you to go out there and live you can't stay in the past you can't stay in the doom and gloom and morning uh it's 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 a ghost telling you it's the ghost of someone that you're mourning telling you to go out there and live and, 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 and get the juice out of this life now. Um, and I love that. I think that's such a strong and good and important message. And it, it takes you kind of to um, a kind of a narrative arc that brings a, a proper conclusion to the album, which again is sort of goes back to my point is that there is a kind of a, the album as a whole kind of takes you on a journey with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, but along the way, there, there are two other um, numbers. Uh, I mean, first of all, actually, the, the title song, Ghost Song, Your Own Song, um, which is amazing. Where did you get the idea of the children's chorus at the end? I was listening to this album by Dorantes. He's a, he's a pianist, a Spanish pianist, I think. And the album... He has a track on there called Ouroboroi or something. I don't remember how to pronounce it. Um, and he plays instrumental for most of it. 
And then at the end, or not at the end, I don't even know when, at, at what point, but at some point, there's this, this choir of kids just screaming. I mean, not screaming, but singing with, you know, their, all their voice singing out. And it was so beautiful. And I, I always wanted to do that. I always thought I really want to do that. And I really want to do that with this song because it's so much about death and it's so much about the past. And it's so much about like, I don't know, something old. And I thought it would be a great contrast and, and that it would be kind of scary, but also kind of beautiful to have this very nostalgic thing sung by these 10 year olds, you know, it, it's very really youthful, young yeah. voices. It really is very poignant. The other two two numbers on the album that I particularly wanted to mention was The World is Mean, which is from Threepenny Opera. Is that your first foray into the, the Brecht Vile canon? I, I can't seem to recall another of yours. I don't remember if it's the first. It might not be the first, but it is definitely... Um, maybe it is the first that I recorded... But I also sing a few others from, from Three Penny Opera and um like I sing Pirate Jenny and right. I sing Barbara Song. Yeah. Great, great numbers. And of course, you know jazz seen from a purely European perspective, which is, you know, sort of has some aspects of jazz, but it's really not jazz. It's I've always found that kind of half that kind of twilight world of 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 you know vile at that period uh working with Bert, Bertolt Brecht um fascinating by being sort of this you know in a world of all all of its own that isn't quite one thing and and not quite another I love that yeah yeah and then the the last one which was for me a particularly poignant song was Dead Poplar which in which your text was um uh, from a letter from photographer Alfred Stieglitz to Georgia O'Keeffe now that's part of an epic correspondence. Uh, I think it's like 25,000 letters. How did you manage to fish that one out of, out of the pile? You know, again, it's like luck and instinct. I got the book. Uh, I don't know where it is. I have it right here. And I was just flipping through. It's a thick book. I'll show it to you. It's really a thick, as you said, it was 25,000 letters. I mean, look at this thing. It's like, Oh man, that's a lot. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just did this and I just would read, you know, good morning, it's 11, it was nearly 9 when I got up and just, you know. Yeah, yeah. And eventually I I fell onto this beautiful poem that he wrote. I mean, it wasn't a poem, but to me it was. And um and I thought, oh, I've got to I've got to set that to music. Right. It's beautiful. And, and that's and the reason I know about this book is because of uh, Robin O'Neill, uh, who uh, had has a podcast called Me Reading Stuff, where she reads poems uh, every episode. And she must have read an entry from there. And I thought it was so beautiful that I bought the book. And then I was just flipping through. And I, I found this. And I, I didn't plan on making it into a song. I just wrote it out on a post-it and I put it on my piano just because I thought it was beautiful. Uh, that's uh, that's amazing. And I, I take it it's from the time when their relationship was either had, had ended or was in the process of ending. And it just has such a, 
I guess, you know, this, I guess, autumnal quality, which I, I really find very powerful. But by the way, when I listened to to the album as a whole, to Ghost Song, uh, the thing that popped into my mind immediately was that old thing about what, uh, you know, brides are supposed to have uh, at their wedding, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, um, which in this case is a different kind of blue. Um, and I just found that really compelling. It's, it's, it is a remarkable album. But, you know, the thing that really kind of knocked me for a loop was your most recent one, uh, Melusina, which to me, it feels like you've created a song cycle. Basically, you've told a story through a series of songs, some yours, some other people's, and those other people's go back over a thousand years or almost a thousand years. Um, uh, can you explain the concept? Who is Mel Melusina? Where does her story originate? She is a half woman, half snake. Uh, and she keeps that a secret. Uh, she gets married to this man and tells him never to see her on Saturdays because Saturdays are her day. And he accepts. And they have 10 children. And one day the husband's brother comes to town and says, you should really be looking at what she's doing on Saturdays. It's not, it's not right for her to have this time by herself. He must be doing something wrong. And so he pierces a hole in her door and he looks through the hole and he sees that she's bathing in her tub and she has a giant snake's tail that's beating the water and splashing all over the place. And when she sees that he's spying on her and that he's betrayed this, this, this deal and he's betrayed her, she turns into a dragon and she flies out the window. All the songs on the album tell a part of the story. They're, they're in sequence in order to tell the story. Well, you are um, a new Schubert. That's all I can say. You've graduated You're with us. You're very sweet. Well, but it's fascinating because the story itself dates back to medieval France. It's from Poitiers. And if people want to see a representation of this remarkable hybrid um, multi-species persona, um, they can go to one of the most famous of all medieval manuscripts, the uh, Très Richeur du Duc de Berry, and you'll see the chateau of uh, Lusignan, the Lusignan family, because I guess the the character, the man who, who marries Melusina, he's um, one of the, the family, the Lusignan family. Um, Which is why where her name comes from. Melusine is like Mère Lusignan, ah, right? the mother of the Lusignan clan. Right. And in that picture, you can see her as a dragon flying over the castle. Um, and by the way, for as a bit of trivia, for anyone who's ever seen the Ridley Scott movie, uh, Kingdom of God, the bad guy is a member of the Lucien family, Guy de Lucien. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's, he's a really awful character. Um, but they, he was a real, a real person. Um, so the, you've got this enormously rich, multidimensional, because my understanding is that... Um, in the folklore, um, she's also regarded as a builder, as someone who helped to create 
the, the this great chateau, which now unfortunately is only a ruin. Um, so she's seen as a figure of, you know, of fidelity, of devotion. The man's behavior is a sign of betrayal, but she's also um, has the complexity of a mixed nature, a person who is neither one thing nor another, but a, a composite, just like every human being is. Um, it's so multidimensional. And what I found fascinating about the way you approach the subject matter is um, that you drew upon so many sources. You say you went back to um, the 12th century with two um, of the only, I mean, the only um, uh, woman troubadours that we have a record of. Um, and those are magnificent. Um, you draw into the, the 20th century French chanson literature, your own pieces. Um, you've got an air de cour, and then you have uh, material in uh, Haitian, as well as the, the medieval material, which is in Occitan. What was the research behind this? I mean, this must have been an incredible journey to find the material and I'm going to guess mostly intuitively say, oh, that belongs. That maybe doesn't quite belong, but maybe a little bit, but now leave it on the, on the side. And, exactly. And then, exactly. no, that doesn't belong. Yes, exactly. It was, it was gathering all the songs uh, in French or, um, uh, yeah, for the, that, I, that I'd been singing for the last 10 years, but also new songs, gathering all the songs that I knew of that I wanted to record and seeing how, like, what fits in the story? How can I, how can I place this and, and testing it out? And, um, uh, and, you know, I think it's, it's research that had been done over the course of, of my life. Um, I, I found out about Meguzine maybe 10 years ago or seven years ago when I was looking up female monsters and I, um, I, some of these songs I've known, you know, the song from Sarmania, I've known from the time I was eight or, or seven. Um, so it's just because I had never done a fully French language recording, there was still so much repertoire, so many songs, and still there are still so many songs that I haven't recorded that I sing in, in shows that I love to sing that are in French. Um, so it was just a question of picking and choosing. It was kind of a wonderful parameter and a wonderful sort of boundary that I set for myself of like, how do I tell this story? This is the way I'm going to pick these songs rather than what I had maybe done for previous albums. I mean, not for ghost songs so much, but for other albums where it's like, I'll just pick my favorite songs. I'll pick the songs that I love the most or that I find the most interesting. And this was like, I'm going to pick songs that fit in with the story the most. Uh, sometimes they're not the most interesting and sometimes they're not my favorite songs, but they fit in with the story. And so this, this has to be, and I kind of loved having that, um, those walls around me because it, it, you know, when you have sort of boundaries like that, it forces you to be more creative in a way. Right. Uh, well, and again, context kind of amplifies the intensity of the song so i don't know which are the songs that you might have felt were not quite as strong as standalones but they 
they are amplified by the you know the the sequence and the evolution of the plot and the the saga of of the main character um i was really floored from the very start and and um and i i can't do justice to, and properly pronounce the title of the opening song because it's actually not pronounced in, in the lyric but um but it made me reflect again that in addition to everything you've accomplished in jazz and i i know that you really are now at a stage in your in your musical evolution where you defy any kind of characterization which is i think wonderful um but you really are uh now one of the great chanteuses in the tradition of piaf aznavour uh charles trenet um your way Thank with you. a with a lyric uh, in the french language is so beautiful and your choice uh i mean what the thing about about that tradition is that it it merges a kind of a a nearly high art poetic sensibility in the lyrics with very sophisticated music as well so i mean the kinds Thank of you. the kinds of lyrics that you find in those songs are not what you would find in you know a Cole Porter or Gershwin song as as clever and well chosen and 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 uh, and strong as they are it's not like like you know taking a page from Baudelaire you know that wouldn't belong in yeah 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 i mean those are songs if we're looking at Cole Porter those are songs that he meant as songs right but but a song like which is the first track on, on this album, it's a poem by Louis Aragon, who's one of the great poets. It's like, it's, it's equivalent, I guess, to having a, a song with lyrics by Walt Whitman. You know, it's, it's, it's just fully, or like by Shakespeare, and I'll say, you know, it's fully poetic language. It's very evocative. It's, um, it's kind of confounding, like you don't quite understand it quite yet. And then there there always is something that's slightly out of reach for me in terms of like understanding that it's not even about understanding. It's about it's about being in this moment, in this poetic moment that he's weaving. So um so yeah, it is it is totally a different it's kind of a different approach. Um well, uh, like I say, I mean, I, long may you celebrate that tradition and also with your own songs add to it. Um, before stepping away from, from Melusine, um, the medievalism of it, um, is that something, I mean, you know, you had studied Baroque music. The medieval is like two two levels earlier uh, in terms of music, uh, Western musical history, because it's before the Renaissance, it's back in the Middle Ages. What is it about that musical tradition or poetic tradition or the culture and society that gave birth to it? What was it that, that drew you in? She drew me in. And if it had been, if she had been, a story that was made up in the eighties, I probably would have been as drawn. I love her. I love that story. Um, and I think, yeah, certainly there's, there's a, there's a little bit of a, more of a draw because it's so old and yet to me still works so well. Um, yeah, I just love her so much. I, I think, and I think, and I loved him too, like his role of like, 
being this voyeur, being this sort of betrayer, and imagining that these two characters might be archetypes that live within each of us. You know, this thing of like wanting to hide our freakishness, uh, wanting to uncover our freakishness. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just I just loved that story so much. And I found Medusine online, just just collecting monsters, collecting creatures, collecting hybrid creatures online. I was just and she's one of the first ones, you know, you find. I was interested in chimeras and and women that are mermaids right, right, and right. women that are half a woman, half something. And she kept coming up every time I would look it up. Um and it was only once I had read sort of the blurb of her story that I realized not only that it was French, <laughs> but that it was medieval, that it was, you know, this very old, old story written by Jean Dahas. That's the one that I read. Um, and so, yeah, she, she drew me in. I won't say that I'm not interested in medieval culture because I am. I'm very interested in like the fashion of that time too, like French medieval fashion um, so, so yes, I, 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 I certainly am, am drawn to that, I will say, but it was her. And it really comes across, but for people who are into today, just because there was a castle and what she turned into that, there you go. Your first experience of Dungeons and Dragons. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we, we, we finish up, there are three other things that I wanted to talk about. First of all, um, your visual art, which um, appears really memorably on, in many of your albums, um, on the covers and in the, in the pages of the booklets, but also your work on fabric. And how, how has that emerged as a, as a part of your, your way of expressing yourself? Um, and particularly the, the work on fabric, that, that really interests me. Um, I started embroidering because I wanted to make big drawings on tour. Uh -huh. And because it was something that I had always seen my mom do or my grandma. And it's, it's sort of the easiest, cleanest way <laughs> to draw while on a flight it's extremely meditative because it takes so long to fill things in with color. Yeah. Um, it also makes it easier for me because I'm so, you know, I, I, I do draw on paper. I do like to draw on paper, but I have a tendency to be kind of rough with my materials and I ball things up. And so embroidery to me is like the most durable way of making art because you just embroider on a piece of linen and you fold it up, you put it in the suitcase and then you can keep working later. Um, and yeah, there's that repetitive motion. I mean, it's just so, it's, it's so great. I think, I, I mean, I recommend it to anybody, any kind of repetitive motion hand thing, like even crocheting or knitting. It just, you know, you keep your hands busy and you can, you can also think like you can do it with without you know without listening to music or with it just just do that and think or talk or I, I don't know I just feel like it's such a great way to use the hands uh -huh. it's very um, it's uh, it must be very soothing to do it's extremely soothing yeah yeah oh uh, that's uh, and 
people can find your your work is is in a gallery, so people can find it. It is in Brooklyn. Yes, yes, they can. So go look at it. go look. Um, and um, two other things, two other projects of yours. One that I came across pretty much by accident. That's yoke. Um, can you explain what it is? I found two yokes on uh, on YouTube. I need to make more. <laughs> I need to make more. Um, it's sort of like a multimedia project where I, I wanted to bring together different artists from different disciplines um, and make videos or um, tell little stories. And I did a couple and I need to, I need to make another one. It's very, very sporadic. Um, and then what's the other project? Oh, Gress. Yes. Tell me about tell tell me about the the ogre, the lady ogre. The lady ogre. It is a. It's going to be an animated feature length film. Uh, and it will probably come out in three years, hopefully. And uh, it's about an ogress who lives in the woods near a near a village. And is it an original story of yours? It is. I, I wrote the story and I wrote the music and I sing it. Ah, fantastic. And um, are the, will the animations be uh, derived from your own drawings? I'm doing like initial sketches and then I hand them over to my co-director whose name is Leah Bertel. She's, a, she's an animation director based in Belgium. So we draw everything together and I'm directing the movie as well. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, that is a totally new dimension. And again, you know, moving into a kind of mythological terrain, um, what yes. was it about the, the ogress that you, that you found uh, captivating as a subject? I, uh, I think one of the great things that I'm always interested in, in my singing and my visual art, everything, and, and everything that I watch or read, I'm interested in yearning and in hunger and uh, an ogress is is you know hunger personified right right um and so so i think that's really that's what it comes down to is is exploring hunger and yearning and wanting and desire um and of course secondary to that is just exploring violence and exploring love and marginalization and exploring fat phobia and exploring, um, you know, gender uh, roles and power dynamics. And all of that is, is, is in this piece. And, and nature has a huge, huge, huge uh, part in this, in this film as well. It's like a very big, the forest that she lives in has a very big, big role mm -hmm. in the story. Is, is your ogress a uh, a bit of an outcast? Uh, who yes. yes. So there's there's that. Yes. There's the the rejection, isolation. Um, yes, it, it, absolutely. It feels like it is something that might have taken root during the COVID times when we were all kind of forced into isolation. Is is that? And yet it's not. I wrote it. In 2017. I oh, think. wow. So it goes back away. Or 2018. Yes, it does. Yes. Isn't that fascinating? But also, an ogress has 
power. It's a, a, a this is a powerful. It's power. You know, I think also I like to I like to center these creatures that are ferocious because it's sort of a replacement for my own lack of ferociousness. I'm I'm pretty meek, and so I it's 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 deriving power through these stories of these these women that you know that turn into dragons and that turn into you know, creatures that will not let themselves be taken advantage of or stepped on, you know, yeah. that are that are really clear on their boundaries. I love that because I'm not clear on my boundaries. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, basically, you could tell anyone to get off anytime you want to get, you know. Oh, well, yeah. it's hard. It's hard, I think. <laughs> but Well, that that actually sort of brings us full circle because... Do you now have a sense when you get on stage now that COVID is over and you're back in, uh, you know, you know, out of the, the lockdown world in front of audiences and you see how they respond to you and you're making eye contact with them and you're experiencing the emotions of the song with them. And in a certain sense, you're leading them through those emotions, even as you share them. Are you not feeling the power of that in in what you achieve in that kind of collective experience? I think so. But, um, but where I'm not feeling the power, I would say is more when I'm off stage, ah. <laughs> when I'm in my life, you know, uh, th that's why I can sing these characters. I can sing, you know, these sort of really powerful creatures because I get to sing them. Right. Um, but in life, that's, that's where that's, that's the kicker. <laughs> Well, this has been just fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversations. Uh, just Thank in, you in, so much. In, uh, in parting, I mean, Ogress is still a project in the future, but do you have any further down the line long-term ambitions, things that you would like to do? Um, I would like to write a musical. Ah, uh, fabulous. Yeah, I'd like to write a musical. Well, I'll buy a ticket to that. <laughs> We don't know what it's about yet. That's <laughs> well, all right. I'll buy a ticket anyway. If if okay. if, if it's well, your you. if it's your work and you're in it, and there's even one stanza of French, I'm there. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cecile. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure, a joy. The Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to keep bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website, glengould.ca, and follow us across social media at the Glenn Gould Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Gould Standard. Mm -hmm.